And we're going to turn again to John chapter 1. If you're using a church Bible, that's page uh, 1063. And in the larger print Bibles, 1647. John chapter 1, and in just a moment we're going to read verses 19 to 34. Verses 1 to 18 were John's introduction to this book. And in that introduction, he mentioned another John, John the Baptist, or maybe better known as John the Baptizer, because that's what he did. Jesus was described in the introduction as the true light, and John the Baptizer came as a witness to Jesus, the true light. And now we're going to hear more about John and his witness, beginning in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is God's word. And it tells us about John's mission and his message. It's true that John had a unique role to play in God's plan. But as we look at this, hopefully we'll see, as witnesses to the light ourselves, in our time, we can learn from John about our own mission and message. 
So first of all, verses 19 to 28 show us the mission of a witness. It's preparing the way for Jesus. One thing we've noticed in previous weeks is that the Gospel of John was written after the other three Gospels. And sometimes John just assumes we will be aware of details recorded in the other three Gospels. Verse 19 is an example of that. It tells us this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Why would the Jewish leaders be asking John who he was? Well, the other Gospels tell us by this stage, he was already a well-known figure in Israel. His appearance was striking. He wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. His dietary habits were unconventional. He ate locusts and wild honey. And instead of coming into built-up areas, John stayed out in the wilderness away from the towns and cities. So John was a bit feral. He was untamed, and he was unusual in all sorts of ways. And his preaching was quite severe. He wasn't interested in making people feel good about themselves. He called them some pretty unflattering names, and he told them to repent of their sin. And people flocked to him. Crowds came out to hear him preaching in the wilderness and to be baptized by him. Hence the name John the Baptizer. We'll think a little bit later about the point of his baptizing. But for now, all we need to realize is that John was big news. And so it's no surprise, actually, that here in verse 19, the religious leaders of Israel want to find out more about him. After all, he has totally bypassed these religious leaders. John's father was a priest, but John is not operating within that setup at all. The leaders in Jerusalem probably felt a bit insulted and a bit threatened by John. And from what I've just said, we might be getting the idea that John is a bit full of himself. Why else would he snub the religious establishment and do his own thing? Why else would someone from a respectable family dress and live in such an attention-grabbing way? With his weird clothes and his extreme diet. We might be thinking that John's full of himself, but his first words show that is not the case at all. In verse 20, apparently, before this crew from Jerusalem have even opened their mouths, John greets them by saying, I am not the Messiah. He wants to take that idea off the table right away. Messiah is a Hebrew word translated into Greek. It's Christ. And it means anointed one. In the Old Testament, various people were anointed with oil mostly kings and prophets. And the anointing symbolized that they were being set apart for a special task, some work in the service of God. And the oil also indicated God would provide the power they needed for the task. 
But the Old Testament also looked forward to an ultimate anointed one. And at this time, there was great expectation and great hope that this figure would soon arrive. So a figure like John the baptizer was bound to get people wondering if it could be him. But as we've just seen, John immediately cuts off that idea. I'm not the Messiah. So the group from Jerusalem go through the other figures on their short list. In verse 21, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Who are you doesn't mean what's your name and address and who are your parents. They know that already. What they're saying is, who do you claim to be in terms of your significance? The Old Testament had promised not that the prophet Elijah would be resurrected, but that an Elijah-like figure would come ahead of the Messiah. And later on, Jesus actually did identify John as that Elijah-like figure. But for his own part, John refuses to claim that honor and significance for himself. Neither does he claim to be the prophet. Another figure promised in the Old Testament who, like Moses, would deliver God's words to the people. John says, I'm not him either. And so by now, the group from Jerusalem is a bit exasperated. In verse 22, who are you then? Surely you have some idea what you think you're doing out here. Preaching to the crowds and baptizing people, you must have some sense of mission. What is it? Give us an answer to take back. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Jesus said John was the promised Elijah-like figure who would come ahead of the Messiah. But John won't claim that honor for himself. Instead, he says, I'm just a voice. I'm not worthy even to be listed as one of the characters in this big real-life drama God is unfolding. Who I am is not important. All that matters about me is my message, John says. So forget me and just listen to my message. When these words from the Old Testament book of Isaiah speak about making a straight path for the Lord, they're not talking about fixing up the roads in Israel. They're talking about men, women, and children turning from their sin so that when the Lord arrives, they are ready to receive him. That's why John's preaching has been calling people to repentance. Those who respond to John's preaching are ready to receive the Lord. That's how John is making a straight path for him. Fair enough, say the delegation sent from Jerusalem, but, verse 25, why do you baptize? What's that about? 
Now, today, baptism is a part of the Christian life. It symbolizes, symbolizes the beginning of a new life with Jesus. A person goes into the water, then rises up out of the water. It's a picture of cleansing and a new beginning. That's what baptism means today. But what did it mean back in John's era, before Jesus came on the scene? Well, it did exist. Gentiles at this time who converted to Judaism would sometimes be baptized. But that is not what John is doing. The people he's baptizing are already Jews. They're Israelites. Many of them probably Israelites in good standing in their local synagogue. Many of them are religious people with a great heritage behind them. They're part of the privileged people whose ancestors God brought out of Egypt. He gave them the tabernacle, as we saw last week, and he gave them the law on Mount Sinai. So, John, what on earth are you doing baptizing these people for? You had better be somebody special, John, to suggest these upstanding Israelites need a new life. But again, John refuses to claim he's anyone special. Verse 26, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Notice John doesn't actually answer their question about baptism. He will a bit later on. Nor does he tell them the identity of the one they don't know. That will come in just a moment when he points to Jesus. But what John does, again here, is to insist that he's just a voice and just a pair of hands. Preaching and baptizing. Preparing the way for the true hero. Apparently it was a slave's job to untie the sandals of his master. But John says, I'm not worthy even to perform that work for this individual I'm talking about. So don't try and give me a title. Just let me point you to him. John was totally clear about his mission. And while it's true his mission was unique in a certain sense, he also helps you and me to be clear about our mission as witnesses for Jesus. We live in a world where people are concerned to get what they think is their due. Most work environments are full of people who put great emphasis on their title and their position. Isn't that true? They're very concerned to get the respect and the remuneration due to their title and position. And I understand it is important for people's roles to be clarified. There does need to be clarity on who reports to who and who has authority to make what decisions. Organizations cannot function smoothly without that clarity. But 
Isn't it true that so often what we are really concerned about is not that our organization functions smoothly, but that we personally get the deference and the respect we think we deserve? Isn't that what's behind so much of our fussing about titles and roles? And this passage shows us it's always been that way. This delegation from Jerusalem were to report back on who does John think he is? What kind of honor and recognition is this man looking for from us? And the reason the delegation are focused on that is because that's what their superiors in Jerusalem are focused on. They wrangled for position all the time. And they just assume John is going to be the same. But John won't play the game. He bats away every suggestion they make to him. And he says, I'm just a voice and a pair of hands. Preparing the way for the Lord. What I want you to do is look at him. And listen to him. And receive him. That is countercultural. Whatever time and place you live in. But isn't this the culture we are called to have in the church? Aren't we called to be a body of people who are concerned for Jesus' reputation rather than our own? Aren't we called to be people who seek his honor rather than our own? Aren't we called to be people who realize we have an important mission in this world, but it's not important that we get recognition for our part in the mission. We're not to be like the preacher who went viral when he got fed up with his congregation one Sunday and shouted from the pulpit, I am somebody. That preacher had lost sight of his mission. But it's not only preachers who can have that problem. Whether we teach the Bible in church in any kind of context, or whether we lead music, or coffee morning, or little miracles, whatever it is, don't we all need to stop and remember sometimes that it's not about us? It's about our Lord. We are just a voice. Or just a pair of hands. Preparing the way for the Lord. Seeking to point people to him. Seeking recognition for him. Not for ourselves. And our problem isn't always about getting recognition for ourselves. Some of us are prone to getting a Messiah complex where we think we can solve other people's problems and fix them up. John was obviously a larger-than-life kind of guy. He was bold. He didn't fear anyone, even King Herod. In fact, John's bold preaching to Herod got him killed in the end. So John was not a shrinking violet 
but he most certainly did not have a Messiah complex. John knew Israel needed transformation, but he did not imagine he could bring about that transformation. He said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a voice pointing others to the real Messiah. Maybe some of us need a dose of John's medicine. Because we can get so involved in other people's pain or other people's sin that we begin to imagine solving their problems is on us. And that can become a crushing burden for us. And maybe a crushing burden for the person we're trying to fix. Or equally bad, if we think we're having a bit of success at being someone's Messiah, we can get dangerously proud of that success. Our calling is to serve others sacrificially, even to serve to the point where it hurts. But we are not called to be their Messiah. We serve them and we point them to the one who can fix them. Because there's only one Messiah and it ain't me or you. That's what John the baptizer shows us. The mission of a witness is to prepare the way for Jesus. Then in verses 29 to 34, John gives us the message of a witness. Look first at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we are not to suppose here that John had never laid eyes on Jesus before. He was actually a relative of Jesus. And by this point, he had almost certainly already baptized Jesus. But here, John publicly proclaims who Jesus is. And what a proclamation it is. If we've been in church for any length of time, we'll be familiar with the idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God. But it's important to go back and ask, what did it mean to John when he said it? What would the people listening to John have understood by it? Well, if you read through the Old Testament, you will find yourself tripping over lambs all the time. For one thing, most people were farmers, and so there are hordes of sheep on the hills all throughout the Old Testament. They were a familiar sight. Then there's the Passover lamb. On the night the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt, God instructed them to slaughter a lamb, paint some of its blood on the doorposts of their houses, and when God's destroying angel came to bring judgment on Egypt, he passed over the homes of God's people, those who had the blood on their doorposts. And from that day on, the lamb and the blood of the lamb had powerful significance. And God instructed his people to commemorate that event with a Passover meal every year. But it didn't end there. 
Earlier, we read God's command in Exodus chapter 29 that every day in Israel, two lambs were to be sacrificed at the tabernacle tent, one in the morning and the other at twilight. And that was carried on later in the temple when it was built. So the Old Testament is full of lambs. And from the time of the Exodus, the idea of a sacrificial lamb was central to Israel's worship. More specifically, the idea that the lamb died so the people didn't have to. The lamb died instead of the people. And as John the baptizer preached, two lambs were still being sacrificed every single day at the temple in Jerusalem. Over the years, thousands and thousands of them had been sacrificed. A never-ending repetition of the sacrifice. But here, John points at Jesus walking down the road, who is most definitely a man and not a lamb, and John says he is the Lamb of God. In other words, he's the one all those other lambs were pointing to. Now, those lambs were all supplied by the people. They brought the lambs to God. Jesus, John says, is the lamb supplied by God himself. He's the definitive lamb. He's the one whose sacrifice will not need to be repeated. Because he will take away the sin of the world. Jesus will deal with sin and he will deliver from judgment in a way no ordinary lamb could do. If they had been able to do it, there wouldn't have been fresh ones sacrificed every day. The role of all those thousands of lambs their mission in life was to show what Jesus would do. He was a man who would be slaughtered in place of men and women. He would take God's judgment instead of the people. In his death, he would take away the guilt of their sin and the punishment of that guilt. And notice, this is not just a wonderful thing he's going to do for Israel. He will take away the sin of the world. The sin of non-Israelites, like you and me. Now we already know from the introduction to John's gospel, Jesus is the savior of those who receive him. So we are not being told here in verse 29, Jesus takes away the sin of everyone in the world. It's everyone who receives him. But this does mean the invitation to receive him is for the world. It's for human beings without distinction, according to background or wealth or personality or achievement or nationality. Jesus takes away the sin of all who receive him. 
No matter who they are or what their sin happens to be. There is no one too sinful and there is no sin too terrible that Jesus cannot take it away. And he will take it away for all those who receive him as the Lamb of God. And if you're willing to admit that you are a sinner, then Jesus is the one who can help you. He is the Lamb of God who deals with our sin. And if we go back to John the baptizer for a moment, what is so refreshing here is the clarity of John's message about Jesus. John doesn't faff about saying, you know, folks, Jesus is an important person. And it would be lovely if you decided to think about considering whether the significance of Jesus is something you might just possibly do well to reflect on at some point, if it's not too inconvenient. Now, John, with his first words, gets right to the heart of it. And surely John is again showing the way for you and me in our witness to Jesus. Now it has to be said, these exact words about the lamb would make no sense to someone in our society today. They had a very clear meaning to the people John was speaking to. They knew all about the twice daily sacrifice at the temple. They may well have been there to see it from time to time. That is not the case today in our situation. It takes a fair bit of work today to try and explain who Jesus is and what he came to do. It's not simple. But the point still stands. We are called to be clear in our witness to Jesus. We cannot make everyone listen But when someone is willing to listen, we had better set forth the truth plainly. Which means you and I had better be clear ourselves about the truth. The truth is Jesus did not come to tell us we are doing great We do people a major disservice if we give them that impression. Jesus came to deal with our sin because we're sinners who aren't doing great at all. Even upstanding religious people with a great heritage, that doesn't make us okay. In fact, our situation is so bad Only the sacrificial death of Jesus could deal with our sin problem. Now we can all shy away from that kind of clarity, but we mustn't. Being witnesses means we tell the truth about Jesus. And the truth about why we desperately need him as human beings. Yes, we must do it sensitively. And often we'll have to do it slowly. It takes patience. 
But we have to be committed to the kind of clarity we see in John's message. Earlier, the delegation from Jerusalem had asked John why on earth he was baptizing people. And he didn't answer their question at that point, but now he does. Still pointing at Jesus, he says in verse 30, This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. In other words, yes, I am a little bit older than Jesus, and I have gone public before him. In that sense, he comes after me. But, John says, he is the eternal one. That's the assumption behind what he's saying. And so he surpasses me, and he was there long, long before me. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, John did know Jesus in the sense that he was a relative, as we've seen, and they may have met from time to time while they were growing up. But here John is saying, I didn't know him as the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Remember what we heard last week, Jesus became flesh. He didn't glow as he walked about. He didn't hover a foot above the ground. He was a proper man. And while he did come to display God's glory, he did that through his words and his deeds, not by the way he looked. So it wasn't obvious just from looking at Jesus that he was God in the flesh. And John says, at first, I didn't see him for who he was. But the reason God gave me this baptizing ministry was so that Jesus might be revealed to Israel for who he is. What is John talking about there? Well, look at verse 32. How did that revealing come about? John gave this testimony, talking about the day he baptized Jesus. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. I still didn't know what was so special about him. But God, the one who sent me to baptize with water, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Earlier, John quoted from the book of Isaiah to explain his mission. He's a voice calling in the wilderness. And just two chapters on from that quote in Isaiah, God speaks about my chosen one in whom I delight. God says, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. God's chosen one is the hope of the world. And as John baptized Jesus, he came to know who Jesus truly was. He recognized the man he had always known was God become flesh. The savior of the world. The one spoken about by Isaiah hundreds of years before. 
And so now, finally, we have the answer as to why John was baptizing. He was getting people ready for the true baptism Jesus would bring. Jesus is the true baptizer who gives us new life. We said earlier, baptism with water symbolizes the beginning of a new life. It's not a magic ritual. It doesn't actually change us. But it symbolizes the change Jesus brings in us. Here it's called being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Earlier in chapter 1, it was called being born of God. The New Testament uses various expressions for it, but they all point to new life. John couldn't do that. But when he called people to repent and then baptized them with water, he was getting them ready for the new life Jesus would give. And when we baptize people today in church, we are not changing them. We are testifying publicly to how Jesus has changed them. So John baptized people to get them ready for Jesus when he came. Now that Jesus has come, we baptize people who are trusting in him. Both of those water baptisms point to the life-changing power of Jesus. The church doesn't change people. Jesus does. The church doesn't give people new life. Jesus does. And so what people need is not to know what a great church we are and what wonderful activities we put on. They need to know Jesus. And so everything we do as a church has to be pointing people to Jesus. The church is not here to put on nice activities. We're to be a place where people are introduced to God's chosen one who gives new life. Now we may not always achieve that very well, but we know that's what we're trying to achieve. As God's people, our mission is not to promote ourselves. It's to prepare the way for Jesus. And our message is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who deals with our sin. And he is the true baptizer who gives us new life. So as a church, let's recommit to our mission and our message. And let's thank God this is personal for us, isn't it? It's not just a theory, it's personal. Jesus has dealt with our sin. He's given us new life. So as we close, let's praise him as we sing of the Lamb. Let's pray that our lives will do that, not just our voices on a Sunday.
The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. the cold.